The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to a special mini series of the Numinous Podcast Portrait of a Marriage, where we revisit a seminal blog post. I'm calling it seminal because it's a big <laughs> deal in my life uh, that I published in 2017 on resolving the traps of an anxious and avoidant partnership. So, in other words, a relationship where one partner, in this case, me, a cis white woman, uh, tends to have a more avoidant attachment style. And the other partner, in this case, my husband, Ruben, say hello, Ruben. Hello, Carmen. Hi. Um, a cis white man tends to express a more anxious attachment style. So this is our third episode. Um, and, you know, we shared uh, already that you're feeling a bit um, burnt out still. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Uh, laid off work, quite frankly, I'm just going to say it publicly, I think you should have been on medical leave six months before. (laughs) Um, So this timeline seems about right for me. But one of the things we noticed is uh, we would do an episode like this and like, whew, that was a lot to sit with and took a little while for the nervous system to recover because you haven't been feeling quite as robust. So uh, how are you feeling arriving at this third episode, Ruben? Uh, I'm feeling good. Yeah. I'm a little disappointed because I've been working on some sound things to try to improve the recording and that didn't work out. (laughs) Well, um, I understand though how important it is to you that like listening to our conversation, which was basically a mic set up in, it it was, imagine those like um, on TV where they have interrogation rooms. (laughs) 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 It was just like not the cushiony warm sound uh, that you wanted. We're we're doing something better. It's not quite where you want it to be, but uh, I appreciate all the effort you put in to make it as warm as our relationship. Well, and also Carmen, you have been doing the Numinous podcast for how long? How long, Carmen? Since 2014. 20, that's almost 10 years. And there's how many episodes? Over 200 now? No, we're approaching our 200. Okay, approaching our 200. This episode. is our big lead up, our celebratory <laughs> lead up to episode 200 because you usually come in on those milestone Uh Right. Real cliffhanger here. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, you've been doing this a while. This is kind of a big deal. You talk to a lot of interesting people and um, I would just like the conversations to have as good a sound as they have content. That's kind. I have this thing where, so when I started in 2014, I wasn't exactly an early adopter, but I was like pretty early for like my peer group, which is, you know, women of a certain age, I guess. And um, now, you know, NPR and CBC, they call themselves podcasts and it makes me so irate. It's like, no, a podcast is you're in your shitty, you know, not very well soundproofed room Uh and you're just working on GarageBand. And when, you know... A, a big show like On Being called themselves a podcast. It's like, you have a $6 million operating budget yeah. and a 6,000 square foot recording studio. Like, just stop it. Yeah, so a national is, broadcaster is not a podcast. No, and so I kind of like that scrappy thing. I'm never going to change the intro, which is you, and sounds like, and I edited it from a tiny little loop that was available in free garage band in, you know, version 3.1. <laughs> I, I, I like our scrappy little tin can sound. Hell yeah. Um, I will also say, how am I arriving? We uh, were sleeping outside in the Palace of Dreams, the Palais de Rev. 
We love it. We love it. Um, Follow us on Instagram. We're going to do a video because people are like, how, what did you, where did you get that outdoor sleeping tent? And it's like, oh man. Don't, don't you think the Palace of Dreams needs its own Instagram? Why are you calling it the Palace of Dreams? We've never I, called it that. We always call it the Palais have, des Rêves. <laughs> for the international audience who don't speak French. Oh, okay. I, I did, uh, I did translate the first time. Okay. Um, we're also arriving with our second round of lattes. Oh yeah, I get a really great latte every day on this really cool vintage Chimbali machine, which was already 40 years old or something when you had it, when you owned the pizza place yeah. in the 90s. Yeah, it's got to be from the 60s or so. Yeah, and so we get these amazing, I get an amazing latte every morning brought to me, made by the amazing, by the sexiest barista I ever met, <laughs> eventually brought him home. Anyway. Yeah, so we're, I think we're arriving feeling good, feeling good. plus mm -hmm. the sun has come out. Mm -hmm. We've been doing tons of food preservation. We're really like doing mm -hmm. the small and delicious life thing, getting ready to take questers up the mountain, mm -hmm. which we haven't done in four years. It's spring. Mm -hmm. The giant pumpkin plants or seedlings are growing. <laughs> Got to get out there and weed the garden. But We are good. anticipating a heat wave, so there is some climate anxiety. Yeah, always in the backdrop. Mm -hmm. And actually, like, advice to not plant out garden seedlings and not seed things uh, because it's going to be too hot and they will die. So there's, you know, ever-present existential uh, stress. We hold it both. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so um, we are about to get into the conflict part mm. of uh, kind of getting into the bare bones, the nitty-gritty of conflict and what it's like in the body, in the brain. And in the dynamic, when you have somebody who's anxious and someone who's avoidant and you're fighting. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Then we'll start to bring in patriarchy a little bit more. And then we'll see where the conversation goes. Okay. Sounds great. Each time there's a misattunement in a relationship, it can reinforce the judgments and identifications already being triggered in our brains and bodies. It's a vicious cycle. The top-down, bottom-up distress cycle is a continuous loop of information, which I think is why it's accurate to describe really bad arguments as being sucked into a vortex of trauma. When we perceive a threat and our brain initiates the fight, flight, freeze, or tendon befriend instincts, it's a bit like our body goes into shock. Our respiratory and circulation systems constrict and focus their energy on keeping the heart and vital organs alive. All of the non-essential systems pretty much start shutting down. This is why a normally eloquent and articulate person can become mute in an, in an argument. They freeze. Their mind is wiped blank. It might appear that they are withholding or withdrawing, but in fact, their systems are literally shutting down. There's nothing in there to withhold. <laughs> nothing is happening inside that they can consciously perceive anyway. So... We have described me shutting down in arguments. I, I, one time I explained to you that the reason I'm not talking is not that I'm withholding or giving you the silent treatment. Literally, there's nothing inside. I'm in the concrete box. And I would describe the concrete box. It's almost like, like, just like, like the oxygen gets sucked out, all the power goes out. And I'm in a concrete box where the walls are two feet thick above, below, side to side, there's no doors or windows. And it's like being in a coffin and the oxygen is sucked out. Um, 
there's nothing happening in my brain. I'm not formulating a response. <laughs> I'm not seething at you. Literally nothing is happening. Um, it's, it's a, you know, so in trauma, we would call that like dissociation, but I know, I never really think of it as dissociation because I feel very much in my body. I'm just trapped inside. Um, what's it like for you? It's so, first of all, I keep using present tense, but this is, <laughs> we, this hasn't happened in a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, what was it like for you in the beginning of our relationship when you would notice me go into the concrete box? Uh, well, I didn't notice you go into the concrete box. It was years before, um, I think you described that actually years of fighting before you described that and years more before we understood what was going on inside the concrete box, I think. So at first, you know, I come from a very, um, rational talk things out, find right and wrong, present facts and <laughs> adjudicate the case sort of, uh, you know, approach. Um, and so for me, it was incredibly frustrating that you would just like check out in the middle of our conversations. And to me, it felt like, like we weren't even fighting particularly badly necessarily. It's not like this was happening, uh, necessarily hours into a long fight or anything. This might be happening kind of what to me seemed like we were still in a very functional state. We were arguing, but we were making sense, you know, and then you would proceed to just vanish, you know, from the conversation. So that was, um, bad, frustrating. And of course, from the, um, anxious attachment perspective, uh, you know, in combination with all sorts of other like micro wounds in our relationship, you know, this was a big attachment threat. It's like, where did Carmen go? You know, so I am afraid of Carmen not being here. Uh, and in fact, Carmen has just left confirming all my fears. Right. Okay. We're going to get into what it's like for you, um, a bit more in terms of what that physiologically is like for you mm. when the attachment threat comes up. Mm. I'd like to share what's happening for me. So when you say like, we hadn't even been fighting for hours <laughs> already. I'm just like, uh, I can feel the like hours. That's just like way too long. Oh, mm -hmm. Mona has entered the chat. I don't know if people could hear the jingling, but there she was. Um, <clears throat> for me, we had already been arguing long enough 20 minutes, maybe a lifetime. <laughs> yeah. It felt like, so 20 minutes of rehashing or something, and then you get to half an hour. And like, to me, that was an eternity mm -hmm. and my system was exhausted. And then I would be getting more dysregulated inside myself. Cause it was just, Oh my God, I'm not being heard. We're on a loop. He's not getting it. I'm using every words, all the words I can think of. And instead of it, and, and everything's just getting dismissed, invalidated, argued against. Like, this is my actual reality. I just started to feel like I was going crazy. I'm like, I'm sharing with you my reality of whatever's happening. Um, and when that happens, what we've discovered is that I, I have a, a pretty, like, I have a hair trigger. I'm very sensitive to feeling um, dismissed and invalidated and uh, that kind of brush off, um, or bulldozering or snowballing over 
I, I, that exhausts my nervous system. And so it is just like oxygen getting sucked out of a room. I just can't breathe. And so there's a period of activation and then there's the freeze. It's just a, a waiting it out, a resource conservation because I can't breathe. There's nowhere I can move, nothing I can say that will be treated as real and valid. That, that was the experience for me. So it doesn't really matter how long, but certainly after 20 minutes. And so, hey folks, people's nervous systems can only really tolerate an intense state for like 20 minutes max. That's like, you'll find different figures uh, with different trauma instructors, but essentially, um, you know, Stan Tatkin in the psychobiological approach to couples therapy, he talks about like, if you if you're not done after 10 minutes, you need to stop that argument and have an agreement to take it up later. 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we would be going for a couple, an hour, a couple hours, and then it would drag into days. Yeah. Into the night. Into the know. night. Yeah. And our, hours. and our worst arguments. You know, yeah. Our... Those are the worst. Those are the memorable ones. <laughs> but there were plenty of times where it would be like a half day shot just being snipey mm -hmm. because we didn't properly repair or neither we, we agreed to disagree or whatever people called they taunt mm -hmm. um, and that actually is also just extending the state of exhaustion for the nervous system so you're just you're really just not going to solve anything at that point you've got a neurobiological problem that isn't going to be solved with more words uh, so you also described in the past Ruben there was one time I asked you what is it like for you we might have been in therapy and it was like, what is it like for you, Ruben, when the attachment thread is present? And you said, oh, my God, it's like there's a tornado in my spine. Or you said like brainstem or something like that. But it was like right up by your head and this like whirlwind. Mm -hmm. um, what is it like physically for you when the attachment threat was there? Yeah, I don't remember saying that, but that sounds uh, very descriptive. <laughs> it's like... Every like the whirling of a tornado, it, yeah, is just so descriptive. Everything is moving so fast, uh, and it's focused like the the suction into the center, um, whirling around and sucking into that center is so uh, descriptive, yeah, of what it feels like. Um, and it's like my yeah, my brain, my ears, my eyes, like everything is is like lost in the wind of the tornado <laughs> and tightly wound is that accurate yeah yeah like you know i think the the physical demands of holding a tornado on your neck you know like does something to my body mm -hmm. um i don't think that's the that's not the focus for me as much as the tornado when i think about like what happens is it mostly thoughts are, are whizzing around and like things are flying and flailing? No, it's all like emotion, mm -hmm. you know, and it's mostly just uh, um, like it's it's very catastrophic, you know. So it's, um, you know, Carmen's um, in the concrete box. She's not responding. This is the end of our relationship. I got to find a place to sleep, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like the the catastrophizing about the end of the relationship mm -hmm. uh, happens very quickly and 
uh, with no real connection to the topic discussed before you go into the concrete box. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so all the words that you're using to try to get through this argument, this is in the past again, mm -hmm. you were just like grasping at thoughts going by, or you were trying to articulate something to me to help settle this tornado of emotion. Yeah, well, now I would say, you know, I think that's all an attachment bid, right? It's all like, come back here, attach to me. Mm -hmm. mm. I'm right here. And that was then, but this is now. Yeah, that's been a long time. Yeah. It's been a long time, but it can be fresh when you just get into it, hey? Yeah, well, the freshness is, you know, even after we started, even after you brought attachment into the relationship and we started understanding trauma more, um, there was still like the... There's still like the leftovers mm. of all the years, you know, and obviously there's, there's our whole lives that we're bringing in <laughs> that's triggered, you know, it's not like, it's not like we just started our relationship and hurt each other so bad, you know, we were bringing in our whole lives, mm -hmm. uh, that is being triggered in, in many ways. I think the largest part, mm -hmm. um, so you know, so there was our whole lives plus the first half of our relationship that was um, activated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously still gets activated. Mm -hmm. We had a spat yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> and it's all just like the same old stuff. Right. So. Just smaller and more manageable and more easy to repair with each other. Yeah. Yesterday we did a better job of identifying what was happening in it. and. Mm -hmm. It still hurts, it. though. It's, it, yeah. What you're identifying is like, oh, we're identifying that there are emotions here and we're, we're trying to throw bids to each other to reassure, just so you know, <laughs> you're, yeah. you know, you're my closest, you're my person and you're the closest person to me and you're my safest person. So I'm being kind of shitty right now, <laughs> uh, but it's not because you are shitty and you didn't do something so bad. And this is a combination of my mood and my, uh, stress levels and my hunger levels and all of that. And it's easier to receive that as reassurance after all these years. And all these years are how long, Ruben? It being almost our dateiversary. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, we're coming up on, is it Monday? Yeah. We'll be 14 years since our first date. And our relationship started on our first date. So 14 years together coming up on Monday. Mm -hmm. And it's been you know, you wrote this article six years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's been seven, seven and a half years we've been, uh, working on this. Yeah. Which it, is yeah, bringing half our relationship. In. That's yeah, kind yeah. of amazing. Yeah. 14 years and seven years. Wow. Just sending out a little hope <laughs> to all those people that are like, oh my God, is it always going to be like this? Uh, it, it may not always be like this. No. And a little realism to all the folks who think, oh, we'll just go to therapy six or seven times and yeah. get some communication tools. and Yeah, we'll do a weekend. Yeah, we'll do this uh, weekend workshop. Um, yeah, no, it's a lifetime kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's go back to the article. So 
taking it up again here. We'll come back to specific top-down, bottom-up therapeutic approaches later, but let's keep filling in the picture of what is really happening in our attachment dynamic so we can interrupt the patterns of behavior that keep us stuck. Now, if you don't know what your attachment style is, you can find quizzes in the books Attached and Wired for Love, but I highly recommend you take Dr. Chris Fraley's more lengthy assessment. It's trackable over time so you can see how your attachment style is evolving. So you would, there's a link in the article, it's yourpersonality.net. I love that thing, man. I, there, there was, I think, one year where I only did it once, but I tried to do it every six months or so. Um, Anyway, we've already talked about that in past episodes. But let me say again, the thing that's super interesting about that, I think, for me as an anxious partner, <laughs> is that multiple relationships can be tracked with that tool. And so you see the different attachment styles with different people, like your mother, your father, your partner, your child. Your best friend. Your best friend. Mm -hmm. So, which is, I, you know, yeah, then it's like, it's not all about me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there's multiple things going on mm -hmm. okay so here's the next section of the article protest behavior and deactivating strategies let's see if anybody recognizes them themselves here <laughs> in our anxious avoidant dynamic both people have developed strategies to cope with relationship conflict protest behavior is the way we signal to our partner that our needs aren't being met deactivating strategies are how we keep our partner at arm's length so the anxious partner will make excessive attempts to reestablish contact, like incessant calling or texting, or just dragging out arguments and rehashing conversations for hours and hours. Stereotypically within patriarchy, if the anxious partner is female, she's often approved by society for playing, for playing her feminine role. It's expected that she will want to communicate endlessly and in detail about how she feels about what he's done. If the anxious partner is male, though, he is vilified by society. His wife might despise this shameful aspect of his personality and view it as a personality flaw, a failure to perform masculinity, which totally sucks. The avoidant partner will withdraw, literally and figuratively. They may make themselves physically unavailable by leaving the room or turning their phone off. Or they may simply remove all emotional affect from their voice and sit expressionless, checked out, making vague statements and going through the motions of communication, subtly refusing to give their partner the satisfaction of the feeling of true engagement. Again, stereotypically within patriarchy, if the avoidant partner is male, he is venerated as a man of strength, dignity and commendable stoicism. His nagging wife is the albatross around his neck, the butt of sitcom jokes, and he is considered long-suffering in his tolerance of her drama. If the avoidant partner is female, though, she is mistrusted and resented by society. She is a bitch. Her husband may see her as the primary cause of his emasculation, which, of course, is such bullshit. Both partners may act hostile during conflict. This could be expressed as eye-rolling, sarcasm, mocking voices, shouting, throwing things, or even escalate to physical violence. Both partners may threaten to leave or push the right buttons to drive the other partner to do so, leaving them blameless of this particular offense. In our house, we call this pulling the ripcord, making a ripcord statement 
is saying the thing you know is going to drive the other person so insane. Okay, sorry, I don't use that. That's ableist. I wouldn't say insane, but so angry that they will want to parachute out of the relationship like a drag chute on a race car, which will prove, aha, what you've known all along, that you couldn't trust them to never give up or leave. Both partners may engage in keeping score. Both styles are prone to punishing the other overtly or covertly for not meeting their needs in the way they would like. This could mean waiting to return a phone call or text or waiting for the other to initiate reconciliation because, quote, it's their turn or acting aloof and distant even after making up. And both partners may consciously or unconsciously manipulate and emotionally fuck with their partner in other ways like making them jealous, making them wait, or excluding them from activities, but always with legitimate, quote unquote, legitimate excuses. Avoidant partners and sometimes anxious partners who wish to punish their spouse might use deactivating strategies like not saying I love you in return or focusing on their partner's imperfections and comparing them to prior relationships, keeping secrets or leaving things up in the air, avoiding physical closeness, or pulling away right after things start going well. All of these behaviors are typical when our trauma and our attachment system get the best of us. It's crucial to understand that anxious attachers are particularly susceptible to getting trapped in the vortex of a chronically activated distress cycle, whereas avoidance attachment systems will usually regulate it if they're left alone. The brains of anxiously attached people react more strongly to thoughts of loss and under-recruit support from regions of their brain that would normally down-regulate the negative cycle. It's physiologically more difficult for anxiously attached people and people in anxious states to interrupt the cycle. I think that was a hugely transformative thing for me to realize as an avoidant person. Um, I had to learn a lot about the nervous system and polyvagal theory. To, and, and polyvagal theory is one of those things, um, when, when I'm referring to that, we're talking about those three branches of the autonomic nervous system, the ventral vagal or the social engagement system, the sympathetic, um, which goes up the spine, and the parasympathetic, which is the lower part of the body. I had to like learn about it in so many different ways before it just clicked for me. And it clicked for me in Diane Poolheller's training about somatic attachment. And I think it's because it never made sense to me as just a stress thing, because as an avoidant person, I didn't feel stress. I really didn't. So it took me to understand attachment and how more avoidant people have just, we, we have stress, but we've turned down the signal. We've been conditioned to not experience signs of distress in the body. So I had to really map those two things onto each other to go, oh, it's physically harder for Ruben to like calm the fuck down <laughs> than it is for me. And he can't regulate on his own. It, it's just, it, that's not the biology. That's not how it's going to go. Whereas I have enough time and space, I'll cool off and I might, you know, I would remember those things 
and they would calcify and harden within me. <laughs> but I wouldn't be, I wouldn't appear distressed or out of control. So I really had to learn about like how this is not a willpower thing. It's that I, I literally am not getting signals. Like I kind of had to think of it as like, oh, I'm actually dysfunctional because I'm not experiencing signals in my body that I am upset about something unless it happens really quickly and kind of even surprising me and it will come out as anger or something like that. So um, that was really important and shifted then my understanding of how then shall we proceed as a couple because so much of couples therapy is about you're going to take turns and you're going to go back and forth and you're going to really hear each other and I'd be like oh my god I am I am getting so annoyed I didn't realize that's that's dysregulation that that's my stress cycle um and also didn't kind of recognize like oh no Ruben does need this because if he doesn't get enough of it it's not gonna land and so it was kind of like, wow, so I have to train myself, like go to the gym emotionally and physiologically to be able to tolerate more connection so that you could find some settling and hear my words of repair or whatever it was. Any thoughts on that, Ruben? <laughs> I have, uh, well, there's so many, <clears throat> there's so many thoughts, um, I thought it was very interesting you talked about your signal being turned down because it was the work of several years in our relationship to try to uh, turn that signal up to a level where you could hear it. Um, so there's just, there's so many parts of this that are like uh, maybe entire podcasts on their own. Just little mini case studies within our relationship. There are many, yeah, within ours. Yeah, exactly. There, there are many polyvagal podcasts, but... Um, in terms of how it connects with uh, the, 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 I think it changed our manner of approach in couples therapy, or it did for me, mm -hmm. to recognize that, it, no, it's not actually an equal, uh, equal time. We shouldn't be setting a timer so both of us get the exact same amount of time. I might have less time and Ruben might have more because he needs that. But also I need to show up a bit more authentically in the time that I have. So, mm -hmm. um, in an hour's couple session, we might not spend as much time on me. And that's not because I, I don't deserve it or it's not valid. It's just that I can't linger for so long in the conflict or I will, it, uh, it, it was just, it was too frustrating. Mm -hmm. And I had to recognize, oh, I, Ruben just is going to take longer. That's just his physiology. It's not that he's not hearing me. It's that it needs to land for him. Mm. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll get more into this, I think, in other episodes. But uh, you had to do work on letting stuff land. Mm -hmm. But that was an important thing to recognize that, like, you are just not going to be able to let it go. <laughs> and um, I don't actually want to spend a whole bunch of time lingering in this, but I probably have to spend a bit more to co-regulate you because that's just a difference in our physiology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it led me as a therapeutic helper, as somebody who is a somatic recovery practitioner who helps folks um, with their physiological, emotional, relational uh, patterns, 
this is one of the reasons why I work with men with more avoidant attachment styles. Um, there's a lot of reasons why I work with the men versus uh, the women, but it's because I do believe that the avoidant partner really needs to take the lead on presencing some secure attachment as much as possible and increase their, their tolerance for that. The more anxious partner does need a lot of support, but I don't think that they can provide, they have to be pretty skillful, pretty well-trained at this kind of stuff to get an avoidant partner kind of up to speed and functional enough to meet and match them in an argument. I, I think we think of it as like, oh, men, you know, they're, this is how men are. And it's, it is like a physical impairment. And the anxious partner is going to burn themselves out trying to bring up kind of a basic level of functionality, psychobiological functionality in someone who has a more avoidant attachment style because it is a physiological impairment. And it is so much work to just like get them tuned up, like get them mm -hmm. into con physical conditioning to be able to be in um, a truly engaged conversation or rupture and repair cycle. So I try to work with the men because A, I, I get the avoidant tendency. I have a ton of compassion for it, but they have so much more work to do to be able to tolerate being in a relationship and be able to like understand signals in themselves and other people. Yeah, it's in. Interesting. I feel like what I was hearing you say there is that you had to do a lot more work in the fights. Um, and I think that I did a lot of work outside the fights. So like my tornado was going in the fights and you had to bring your functioning up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but there was this really important part where I spent like two years trying to present safety with you. And so I think there's a lot of patriarchy and trauma there that that fed or created the avoidance right yeah for sure and this is you know i do think that this is a um one of the benefits when it the man is more avoidant <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> in a sense um you know patriarchy is, a, is alive and well but literally that's a thing we can like train out of people um and uh, we can condition the nervous system. Whereas here I had to do a bunch of work to show up in the fights while you are my main predator. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. and that's, that's pretty tricky. That's pretty tricky to do. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah, you had to do a ton of work outside uh, to be able to let my co-regulation land for you. Well, and I, I think the issue with um, these attachment wounds is that nobody feels safe and we each express our uh, lack of feeling of safety in different ways, right? So uh, I was anxious because you were factually not giving me loving connection signals. So you'd have a lot of still face, a lot of distance, a lot of monotones, like in our life. It's not like you were like Mary not Poppins just... skipping through the flowers, mm -hmm. you know, in our life. It mm -hmm. was like there was a lot of distance and coolness. And so I did not feel safe and secure, like in our relationship, in addition to my 
I don't know, trait, state tendencies. <laughs> um, so in addition to my who I showed up as in our relationship, it's not like I was being overwhelmed with loving signals. Um, and so then in fights, I'm like, you know, quickly become a basket case tornado. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a yeah. tornado of baskets. <laughs> and not to be like tip or tap, but just uh -huh. so that people understand, like it wasn't like you were really calm and self-possessed and and like um able to soothe yourself and cooing at me mm -hmm. the whole time and I was being like aloof mm -hmm. and yeah. cold and distant there was like a fairly constant it was like I was the locus of your emotional physical spiritual <laughs> intellectual life mm -hmm. and so there was a lot of need and a lot of hunger and mm -hmm. I used to talk about like that insatiable the feeling of living with an insatiable mm -hmm. human mm -hmm. um and that no matter how much sometimes I would be like okay I'm gonna like focus and I'm gonna really bring up my functioning and I'm gonna like give him everything that he wants and then he'll settle and there was never a settling. There was mm -hmm. always an escalation. And then I would be in a spiral of despair of just like, oh, my God, what is the point? It started yeah. to become pretty existential after five years, I would say. Yeah, well, I, I think um, that's a really important part in is that the way that I view both of us is that it took years of consistent presence to actually build the trust and safety. So, you know, when you show up, five years ago, trying really hard for a week or two, it's like, yeah, we got seven years behind this that you are not overcoming at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and the same for me, like I said, I spent like two years trying to present safe attachment and just being like, I'm not, I'm not trying to get anything out of this. <laughs> like I have no, I'm trying to, I'm trying to live in a way that it's like, I'm not expecting this to have any result for me which obviously I wasn't able to keep going forever you know like we still had fights and still had disappointments and all that but my focus is always like I need to make Carmen feel safe so that she can start to tap into the things beyond this avoidance yeah there was something that finally came up in couples therapy where I was able to share a bit more about my sexual trauma knowing that the therapist's job was to hold you because mm -hmm. I was like I cannot handle having to hold him, A, feeling like, oh my God, this happened to you, but B, what does this mean for me? Mm -hmm. like, <laughs> like, it's like, what does yeah. this mean for our sex life? Like, I was like, I just, I don't fucking, if I'm going to tell you mm -hmm. more intimate details about like how much I am overcoming mm -hmm. in our relationship um, to be sexually expressive with you or the mask that I'm wearing, how mm -hmm. much of our sex life was performative because I, I felt much safer behind that mask. You could tell I was like distant behind it, but mm -hmm. I was like, I don't want to get into why, because guess what? That's going to turn into, but that's bad for Ruben's sex life. And mm -hmm. I was like, I'm not, I'm not fucking holding this. So let's get into the next part where we talk about patriarchy, because, um, I, I want to come back to how you, had to choose to subsume all of that insatiability for a while mm -hmm. and presence, um, safeness mm -hmm. for me. So if we scale the attachment system challenges up to the cultural level, here's part of what every hetero couple is up against. Patriarchy says that men want sex and women want intimacy. Patriarchy says that men who aren't entirely self-reliant, 
emotionally contained and independent, are weak. Worse than that, they are cuckolds and girly men. Patriarchy says that women who aren't emotionally nurturing, sexually available, and connection-oriented are bitches. Worse than that, they're gold diggers. A major challenge in this anxious avoidance scenario is parsing out what is patriarchy and what is just being in a relationship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let me restate that. It's hard to figure out what we should be fighting to change in the world and what we should be fighting to change about our marriage. In our case, Reuben and I had to unpack so many things about abandonment, trauma, attachment, and a culture of patriarchy and colonialism just to arrive at a place from which to begin moving forward in our marriage. You are not defective because you can't find grace and ease in your relationship or within yourself in relation to others. It's just super hard. It's really hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's neurobiological. You're fighting against extremely powerful inner, outer, cultural, and systemic forces that actively undermine your impulse to find security within yourself and with each other. It takes practice and tenacity and a willingness to feel everything at all the scales. And for me anyway, it took the nurturance of a deep sense of fuck you towards systemic oppression that reinforced the worst parts of me and the intergenerational trauma that taught me to hurt the ones I love. It's helped our marriage to turn sideways into the light, as the poem goes, and stand shoulder to shoulder, appealing to grace and fighting for the common good. More often now than before, we fight together to reclaim the space within our marriage that patriarchy occupies and that stifles our ability to grow. I want to read the poem before I go a little further. That sounds good. So I'm referencing there a poem by David White. And um, it's a poem about a Celtic myth, an old Irish myth, I think. I don't know if it's in the Scottish Gaelic tradition, but um, David White has a strong affinity for Ireland. And this um, poem uh, is called Topper Fadric. And it's about this myth where there was a army these two armies were going to battle and the one army just knew they weren't going to win. And so they went to battle in regalia. They prepared to do battle, but as they were just about to get into the clash, the myth says that they turned sideways and they disappeared into light. And so rather than fight this like unwinnable battle, they didn't quite surrender, but they, they did. They surrendered to their fate, and they had this mystical transfiguration instead. So this is the poem that we're talking about, that instead of fighting against each other when we should be fighting the patriarchy, this is what came to mind. Turn sideways into the light, as they say the old ones did and disappear into the originality of it all. 
Be impatient with easy explanations and teach that part of the mind that wants to know everything not to begin questions it cannot answer. Walk the green road above the bay and the low glinting fields toward the evening sun. Let that Atlantic gleam be ahead of you and the gray light of the bay below you until you catch, down on your left, the break in the wall. For just above in the shadows you'll find it hidden, a curved arm of rock holding the water close to the mountain, a just-lit surface smoothing a scattering of coins, and in the niche above, notes to the dead and supplications for those who still live. But for now, you are alone with the transfiguration and ask no healing for your own, but look down as if looking through time, as if through a rent veil from the other side of the question you've refused to ask. And remember now that clear stream of generosity from which you drank. How as a child, your arms could rise and your palms turn out to touch the blessing of the world. It's the first and the last lines of that poem that get me. Hmm. That at some point in the fight, you just have to turn sideways into the light and be palms up and let yourself touch the blessing. And the blessing is that you obviously both love each other, that that's not the question here. It's how are we going to be together? And so the turning sideways is like, turn, be shoulder to shoulder and fight against the things about the world, not about your relationship that are causing the agony. Mm -hmm. Poetry has played a really important part, actually, in mm -hmm. our healing and connection of our marriage. Yeah. Do you want to share some about that? Well, uh, there was, there've been periods, you know, a couple of really big periods where we just read each other poetry a lot. Um, and that was, um, I would say from the contact nutrition standpoint, a lot of that was about safe touch, um, and vocal prosody and, and vocal prosody. But I think the, it was a way for us to like touch each other. Like we would lie together. Um, but be focused on something else. So it wasn't uh, sexual or aggressive, but it was connected. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, the vocal prosody of just hearing each other's voices, you know, often not even paying much attention to the words, but just the sounds. Um, and then there's been uh, Neruda's poem, The Queen, is one that uh, I have read to you a thousand times um, and you know daily through some of like not our hardest patches like it's not something we bring out when we're actually fighting but it was something that um, yeah again it was like trying to present safety like trying to um, create more space in our neural reactions for new responses 
Yeah, I think it was another way for us to, I think of poetry as like painting almost, or like it's painting a landscape, maybe in an impressionistic way. And we're trying to paint a landscape of like dulcet tones and devotional words and um, gentleness with each other. And so there's something that happens in poetry which, well, they say poetry is the language against which there is no defense, right? It just like lands somewhere very specific um, that opens us up to imagination. From a polyvagal perspective, it puts us into the ventral vagal state, meaning an openness, a curiosity, an engagement where we kind of want to collaborate with the world. (laughs) And so when you and I are reading poetry to each other, maybe there's like a phrase that that turn of phrase really hits and mm-hmm. you can like hear it in someone's voice and you turn to each other and go oh that's really beautiful and you, there's nothing more you can really say you can't really say why but maybe you can say what it's reminding you of or how it's making you feel um and so that kind of social engagement ventral vagal state mm-hmm. makes it easier to then turn and want to collaborate with each other too so mm-hmm. um yeah i i've there was also, uh, when we were first doing NVC, we did um, a workshop with Rochelle Lamb, Speak to Me Like You Love Me. So NVC, Nonviolent Communication, we've mm-hmm. mentioned that before. Rochelle Lamb, dear friend, good mentor, um, she read John O'Donohue's um, Blessing for Love in a Time of Conflict. Mm-hmm. And it has that scene about, okay, <laughs> what of you has to be the bigger person now? And like, walk across the parched, scorched earth landscape of your relationship now that you've had a fight and offer this chalice. Mm-hmm. And that was really moving for us. I think that might have motivated us to start bringing more poetry into mm-hmm. one of the ways that we could be together, but shoulder to shoulder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then maybe last thing on poetry, because you started this reading about patriarchy, which we need to get back to. Okay. Um, but on our 10th wedding anniversary, we got a couple's tattoo with mm-hmm. two lines from the Naruto poem, The Queen. Mm-hmm. And so it's with us all the time now. Yeah. Yeah. We really imprinted that mm-hmm. ritually. Uh, okay. Let's get back to patriarchy and okay. wrap up um, the show with reading this last little bit here. Okay. It's fortunate that some of the things that attracted us to each other in the first place like appreciation for research and critical analysis, a sense of compassionate social responsibility, and a great capacity to hold space for complexity have come, pretty, have come in pretty handy in this situation. The work we've done together directly impacts my clients. It means that they don't have to synthesize thousands of pages of literature, hundreds of hours of audio and video, and days in workshops. So here we are, two super smart people with a love for each other that is dizzying, Yet we've been where you are, and often still find ourselves there. But less often, and for less time, and in less damaging ways than before. We've been working on it specifically through the abandonment attachment lens since about 2014. And this might be a good guideline to introduce here, that the research shows that about 25% of the population can shift to a more secure attachment style over the course of about four years. 
It doesn't say whether this happens naturally or whether it takes Herculean efforts, but perhaps this is a useful guide to help gauge whether the relationship is salvageable. I don't know that that's still totally true for me, but <laughs> um, like, where did I get that? Um, but um, I think this is like a bite-sized Goldilocks amount, a manageable amount to go into the details of um, uh, our specific stuff. But generally speaking, how would you say that you came to recognize patriarchy as the critical thing required to move our attachment to a more secure place? Um, well, well, I think through your you had kind of a larger political awakening um, and just, you, yeah, our general interest in kind of social justice and trying to understand what's happening <laughs> in the world. Um, and so, you know, uh, yeah, patriarchy often makes it, you know, because it has the word father in it, it makes it sound like it's just all about sexes. But really, it's um, about multiple, complex, and interlinked ways of oppression. <laughs> mm -hmm. Can you talk about epistemic privilege and how recognition that that was a thing mm -hmm. helped you go, oh, patriarchy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's uh, super. I found that to be super important. So um, I like the word epistemic privilege, which means um, epistemic is, is uh, knowing, the ability to know, the way of knowing, and privilege is like, I can do this thing. So <laughs> I, I have a, I can do this way of knowing would be the translation. But the academic work is all like often called standpoint theory or viewpoint theory. And it just says that some people know things that you can never know. Um, so, uh, and it doesn't matter how many books you read or whatever. It's like, as I would say, you know it in your bones. So you can understand theory about it. You can put words together about it, but you can't actually know it in your bones. And so for me, the understanding that I, as a straight white man of, you know, all my various privileges, uh, cannot ever know what other experiences are like. Um, and so that um, gave me a lot of freedom to step away from my logical, rational, let's just argue this out kind of thing to just be like, oh, no, no, I, I can't know this. And so unless I think my wife is looking me in the face and lying to me, then I need to just believe what she's saying. She's telling me the truth. Uh, and it only seems um, unbelievable to me because... I don't have that way of knowing. And so when it came time for us to figure out how, we're, so we have this unsustainable dynamic, this avoidant and anxious dynamic, um, and we need something different than just communication and couples therapy to have a richer connection, a richer sex life, a, a richer shared sense of each other's reality. Um, it seems like through the epistemic privilege lens or standpoint theory, you were like, oh, okay, I need to presence safeness 
for Carmen until she feels safe enough to let that natural latent tendency to attach unfold. And then we can talk about um, what's going on for her with who is the guy snark or whatever, low desire partner, high desire partner, Uh all that kind of crap. Um, Because you as a man not seeing patriarchy was my primary threat. (laughs) It was Mm. like the primary impediment to secure attachment between us. So you really had to like demonstrate and prove for a long time that uh, I wasn't, and and not minimize and not dismiss Mm -hmm. and not, um, and and just center me, Mm -hmm. center those things for a long time. Um, And when I say a long time, like a couple of years, and you still do it as a practice, but it was a real, I think like a mind over matter willpower thing for you. Well, there was like a couple of years where I was not initiating sex. I was uh, being extremely careful about um, kind of my physical presence around you, you know, being careful to not block exits, being careful of how I touched you, you know, just trying not to be, uh, physically, um, trying not to be in your and our house, but in your house (laughs) in a way that, uh, felt intimidating or threatening, you know? So there was just a whole bunch of time to try to be actually be safe mm-hmm. you know and not um and that's uh, just to be clear mm-hmm. you had never been quote unquote unsafe mm-hmm. or like uh, aggressive or anything yeah. like that physically and i wasn't like a nervous wreck mm-hmm. about <laughs> having sex or anything like that we were having like a fully functional sex life where we were tracking it and taking mm-hmm. it to therapy and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff right yeah. we we hey we we've got all the japanese rope stuff right like we're you know so it's it wasn't like oh karma carmen is a a victim of sexual trauma and so she has this like nervous thing coming no i was the avoidant Mm -hmm. (laughs) like you know like yeah sure let's just fuck like you know like and then like now i'm sick of it i've got a a headache like i was pretty one note about Uh it it wasn't um and you know again fabulous I'm so tempted to talk about simultaneous orgasms right now. <laughs> There's no need. There's no need. But honestly, I'm just going to say there was like on paper, mm-hmm. we had like the usual couples th- stuff of high desire and low desire or like stress or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, so you were not a person who was like sexually aggressive or mm-hmm. anything like that. It or, was, or physically aggressive. Or physically I, I didn't aggressive. wave my fist. You were the fist waver. In yeah, our I arguments. was the yeller. Yeah. yeah. I I did train myself to like, I, I wasn't throwing big objects, but I really did want to throw some swings at times. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes instead I threw towels at, mm-hmm. the, at the door <laughs> because that felt good. But yeah. anyway, so I'm just saying that to just say like, mm-hmm. this wasn't a dramatic kind of thing that it was like oh Ruben has to like prove his safeness because he's like punched the wall or anything like that wasn't like that the other thing I want to say though that I had to do was I had to read the will to change by bell hooks men masculinity and love where she says if feminists want men to be more emotional they have to be fucking kind and compassionate when men have feelings and are emotional and stop being so 
angry about that. And um, it's not fair to ask people to be more emotionally attuned and then not attuned to their emotions as well. So that that book is a bit of a, it, it, yes, it's about men, but it was a real mm-hmm. comeuppance uh, for women who are intolerant of men having emotions and having um a rich emotional life and, and a need for secure attachment. Mm-hmm. So we should probably, that would probably be a very important, interesting thing to talk about is how you enacted patriarchy in our marriage. Yeah. Uh, but right now we're, we were talking about epistemic privilege yeah. and, um, as you know, I have a hard time tracking multiple things right now. So, um, no, it's all good. I'm just trying to flag it. Um, so the epistemic privilege, like I, so as, yeah, as a rational man in our culture, um, there's so much dismissing and minimizing of things. And so it's like, yeah, so you were just very clear that, you know, I never caused sexual trauma to you. And so the minimization is, is like, I never caused sexual trauma to you. Why is there sexual trauma in our relationship? Mm-hmm. Um, and so to just accept there is sexual trauma in our relationship <laughs> because Carmen says there is. And therefore, how then shall we live? <laughs> mm-hmm. you, you know, um, that, uh, that was a huge, you know, and not, not just, not just sexual trauma, but all of the bits of our relationship that it's like, no, this is what Carmen says her experience is. And for years I was like, okay, that's the truth. You know, mm-hmm. um, I, I will also say at the same time, I started maybe even a, in this melange, in this mess of five years or whatever, you know, I started like following people on Facebook um, that were not like me. So I started following like black women and lots more indigenous people. And just like I didn't comment or interact, I just tried to learn. I just read and listened to what they were saying (laughs) to try to understand that there's different worldviews and different experiences of the world than mine. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I practiced for a long time and I still do that where it's like, I just follow people and don't, I don't engage for anything of them, but yeah. Yeah. You well, I don't want to say, okay, yeah, you, you, you don't engage in terms of like, let's discuss this. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, um, you are kind of like famous in a small slice of the internet as being a white guy that can be tagged in, uh, or who will speak up if there's like abuse happening in the comments. I I think you spend too much time on Facebook, but at the Mm -hmm. same time, I know that 70% of it is going in and talking to other cis white guys and being like, dude, step off. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We're like, dude, your tone, come on over to my page. And, um, but that's because you've spent so long listening. Can I bring this back to the attachment dynamic though for a sec? So you had to recognize how much dismissing there was and how much it was like, I didn't cause sexual trauma so why am i suffering Mm -hmm. for the sexual trauma and at the same time you were like i need more presence from you Mm -hmm. i need more quality presence and engagement from you Mm -hmm. um and just having great uh simultaneously orgasmic sex is not (laughs) connecting and i had to be like 
okay, well, dude, if you want, you know, there is a reason I've had to turn off my signals <laughs> and have since I was 14 and have to pr be performative and have a mask in order to just like quell you, mm. you know, just to, like it's, it's, it's truly just for you. It's, it's, it's like pretty transactional. I shouldn't say that. You make me feel great, baby. But <laughs> I just mean that, okay, you want quality and presence so you need to be able to hold your hot potato when I now reveal to you, here's the actual truth of what it's been like to be me. Mm -hmm. And so, and it cannot become me caretaking you or me holding space for, oh, so how does this reflect on you since you didn't cause it, but now you're responsible. Like it, it was just mm -hmm. like this, I'm not going to caretake you in mm -hmm. this if you want this authentic engagement, then you need to be able to hold space for me without doing the math on how it's impacting you and sharing that with me and turning this into an equation mm -hmm. um, of fairness or mm -hmm. um, when is it your turn? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the keeping score thing. Yeah. Um, and that that was, uh, you know, that, that was also part of the patriarchal conditioning mm -hmm. that we needed to be like, okay, so it's not going to be totally equal. There is no such thing in this patriarchal society that we're just going to have, um, uh, yeah, this, this like sense where, and now it's finally Reuben's turn. It's mm -hmm. like, no, no, we're going to be in solidarity and shoulder to shoulder and I am going to do my work, but you need to then get your own therapist, get your own friends, get your own. I can't be the locus because mm -hmm. if you want the real me, I need space to fall apart mm -hmm. and know that like, so now I'm not tracking our whole emotional relationship anymore because I'm in my own shit mm -hmm. and I, I can't track everybody's state. <laughs> And this took a just, it was, this was a huge, yeah, this was a leap of faith for me for, for multiple years of just like, I hope that the person who's actually inside there, mm -hmm. uh, is a good person who likes me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because, you know, because I wanted the real you, I didn't want the mask and the performance. I wanted the real you, mm -hmm. um, but the real you did not come out. So it took time. Mm -hmm. And know. now it turns out the real me is just a little bean and I don't even have arms. I can't do very much for myself because I'm just a little bean. And so you have to bring me lattes. <laughs> turns out I'm a much more regressed small little person inside. And you have to do a lot more. And it's funny because it reverts into like this kind of old school, more gendered thing where it's like, you're big and I'm little. I can't take out the garbage. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's playful. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. um, I feel like this is not our best work in terms of a linear story arc here. No, it's not. But... We're just like letting folks mm -hmm. in. This is what it is. Turns out Carmen's oh. just a little bean. <laughs> I, I wanted to say one more thing about the epistemic privilege, but maybe at least one more thing. Okay. Um, talking about the... You were describing... Um, anyhow, you were describing your experience of being a woman in our culture. And uh, I just... You know, something that was important to me was the understanding that this is... Um, like, this is 
what it's like to be a person with non-white skin. <laughs> you know, that there's just, there's uh, just experiences, constant experiences all the time that I have no access or understanding to that have historical impact and that then show up as soon as I, you know, as soon as we're in a relationship, any kind of interaction we have, that's all in the room. Mm-hmm. And as a, you know, um, enlightenment white man, you know, it's all supposed to be just like, well, what's happening right now in this moment? You know, I'm not hurting you. Oh, sorry. That's where I was going is the, you hear the exact script about first nations in Canada that it's like, well, I didn't take their land. Mm-hmm. My children didn't take their land. Why should they suffer? You know, it's the exact script of liberal progressive white fragility. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's a fragility was a big topic in our household for a lot of years. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was. Yeah. So in the next episode, we're going to start talking about how needs are part of being fully human and how, uh, how we relate to needs is different if you're more mm-hmm. anxious or more avoidant. Um, but I think for today, that's enough to digest. <laughs> we're all like 20 minutes. That's what people can yeah. take. Um, yeah. How are you feeling as we leave this episode? Uh, it's always a little ringing, like my heart is a little wrung out like a dish rag. Mm. Um, it's just a lot, you know, uh, well, it's just empathy, right? So I guess I'm feeling empathy for our past selves, mm-hmm. you know, and empathy for our current selves that had to, um, make it through this all in order to arrive here. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a lot. And I feel a lot of empathy for people who are in it right mm-hmm. now because I want to be able to tell them, like, it, it can get better. <laughs> you can yeah. do this. Yeah. But I also recognize, like, oh, wow, it, it was a transfiguration. It was moving from, like, one being with a certain mm-hmm. kind of nervous system and a certain perspective and lens out on the world to a whole different being. And if I'd known that in the beginning, I, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to be like, yes, I want that because wow, it took longer than I expected or hoped. (laughs) And, uh, that said, I, I do want to share, I don't know if 25% of people are going to get more secure over four years. I, I don't know what people, what they were studying in that. I don't know if that's true for everybody listening, but I know that for some people, you want it really badly or you don't want this so badly and I and I, whatever it is you're going through and I do want to say like I'm I'm so grateful cuz I am the person I want to be but it's because I had this partner on this you know it was a battlefield at times mm-hmm. But it has made me, it's made me a better person as it's made me a better white person. It's made me a better, um, uh, ally, uh, to people in down power positions. It's made me a better parent to my kid who struggles with marginalized identities. And I, it really, all of this has been in the crucible of our marriage. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I thank you. I'm really grateful for you. Yeah. 
All right. So let's say goodbye. <clears throat> uh, we'll go to our listener shout out. You know what? I want to read. Like, for some reason, this just seems like the best review to me. So we do a listener shout out at the end of different episodes. And I want to thank people who are leaving reviews. Even just these like little short ones, I really like. So here's one from Amazon. Yeah, maybe you had a spot saved. I sat down at your computer to do the sound stuff. And I was like, what are these Amazon reviews? I started reading them and I started tearing up because they're so great. Oh, that's great. So I just wanted to say thanks to DJ who left like two lines. So five stars. And the title is books are being published all the time on magic. This one is the real thing. Okay, so like that in and of itself, I'm like, damn. Thank you. Yeah, short, pithy, (laughs) punchy. Thank you, DJ. DJ said, um, you know, wonderful spells and ideas. You'll love this book. Mm -hmm. Short, punchy, love it. Thank you for leaving that review. Anybody who leaves a review like that, if they're like, oh, I I don't want to leave a review because I haven't read the whole thing or, oh, I want to say exactly what I think about all the parts of it. No, no, just get on there. Five stars, one line. (laughs) So great. Thank you. Here's... um, Rake 2, Rack 2, R-A-C 2, five stars. Such a beautiful book, exclamation mark. I started following the author on Instagram. Thank you so much. When I saw she had a book, I had to order it. It is so well written and educational. Okay, so that, mm-hmm. I, okay, that really gets me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the photos are beautiful, which they are. Yeah. Stephanie Ray Hull of Centric Photography, dear friend, did all the photos. Yeah. Uh, it is a great guide for beginners and seasonal witchcraft, but also just a great seasonal recipe and craft book. Okay, perfect review. Mm-hmm. It's exactly what it is. That's exactly what, what it is. It's yeah. exactly what it is. So, uh, listener, shout out to everybody leaving reviews, and um, please go leave a review. We'll read mm-hmm. it. We'll cry. We'll like toast each other <laughs> with you in it. I really appreciate that. Oh. And I would be remiss if I didn't say, hey, do you want to take some of my attachment courses? Uh, Because um, you could watch them with your beloveds, maybe like over the summer holiday or Mm -hmm. something like that. So I have three attachment courses. There's one, it's a comprehensive one called Secure, the Magical Art and Subtle Science of Attachment. And in that one, it's like, I think it's like 10 lessons and each lesson is like an hour and a bit. And... I really break down attachment theory, polyvagal theory, and uh, power, rank, and privilege in relationship, as well as contact nutrition. So the, the building blocks of secure attachment. So that's pretty comprehensive. I will say it, take, it generally takes people a few months to get through that because they're like, whoa. Yeah. They, go, <laughs> they get yeah. through a couple and they're like, I need to think about this or I need to digest this. Um, and so it's a good thing to do with a partner if you have one. Mm-hmm. If you're on your own, I actually might consider um, recommending instead the Contact Nutrition 101 course. I think that's like more urgent and important to just understand contact nutrition and how you can glean it from the environment, even if you're on your own. So that short course, Contact Nutrition 101. Um, there's also one called Attachment for Parents of Teens, which is archives of, I ran that course a couple times a year for a number of years uh, in person and online. Um, So that has archived material for how to apply this stuff to teenagers. So those are all part of the Numinous Network, which is my monthly membership subscription. And you'll also get all of the free live calls. There's always over like 30. There's very often closer to 40 live calls a month, which I know can sound really overwhelming. But if you think of it instead as like, oh, every day there's like an opportunity where I could do one thing. 
Mm-hmm. And it's not calls like a lecture. Some of them are somatic exercises. There's Yeah, some of them are just like, yeah, somatics. There's plenty of them too where you can like hop on and just listen and just be there for the contact nutrition. Some of mm-hmm. them, and I do indicate which ones, are like camera on, be present, and they're very sp- focused, like the small business chat. Mm-hmm. Um, and peer supervision where people who are therapists or, you know, helpers, astrologers, doulas, whatever you are, mm-hmm. um, could come to that. So some of them are like camera on because we're you know, we're holding each other's reputations. And so, um, but a lot of them you can just drop in and, um, uh, yeah, they're all centered around cultivating secure attachment with Mm -hmm. yourself and with others and with the land and with spirit. Um, anyway, you can learn more about all of that at carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, all together now. Take care. (laughs) One more time. All together now. All together now. Until next time, take take care. care.